be conscious that you're not overly defining who you are and your success on somebody else's uh, playbook. And realize, though, that you do sometimes need to play games. That's how life works. But you can put your own spin on it, that you can put your own heart into it, you can put your own DNA in it. And that the vulnerability that comes with being able to express your humanity, express your weakness, allow other people to step in to support you, won't actually hold you back. It may actually be what propels you forward. What's up, everybody, and welcome back to the Color of Money podcast. Now, today we have a guest that I'm really excited to speak to and learn from, Mr. Bo Minkitty. Now, this bio, to be honest, this bio is going to be a little bit long because of all the accomplishments and all the things that Bo is in, this is going to be a it's going to be a long one. Now, Bo is the founder of the CEO of the Minkitty Group, which is a real estate company that's dedicated in transforming lives, careers, and communities through real estate. The Minkitty Group is focused on strengthening neighborhoods through the strategic development, management, and disposition of real estate in urban markets. Mr. Minkiti also serves as the CEO and the founding partner of Keller Williams Capital Properties, a residential real estate brokerage managed by the Minkiti Group. Now, prior to forming the Minkiti Group and Keller Williams Capital Properties, both served as the chief operating officer of College Summit, a national nonprofit organization dedicated to increasing the college enrollment rate of low-income students. In this capacity, Bo oversaw the organization's successful growth into a multi-state national organization. Now, the Mankiti Group and Keller William Capital Properties has been recognized by Inc. Magazine as being among the fastest-growing private companies in the nation and has the initiative for a competitive inner city, a Fortune Magazine as two of the fastest inner city businesses in America. Now, Bo is committed to serving his communities and transforming neighborhoods by serving on civic and public service organizations. Now, in 2013, Bo was elected as the president of the District of Columbia Association of Realtors and was appointed by the mayor to the board of D.C. Water, the District of Columbia Water and Sewer Authority. Now, Bo is also a trustee in the Federal City Council and serves on the boards of the Meyer Foundation, City First Bank, Ryan Kerrigan's Blitz for the Better Foundation, and the District of Columbia Building Industry Association. In 2014, Bo launched CPMG Foundation, the Capital Properties Mankiti Group Foundation, which is an organization that focuses its resources on serving the community in the, in the areas of housing, youth, education, and entrepreneurship. Now, as a, as a graduate of Harvard University, this man has a, a long page of accomplishments and an incredible, an incredible amount of knowledge, resources, experience, and all of the things. So welcome, Bo. I'm super excited to, to lean in with you, get to know a little bit about this development, the community, um, and some of the servant leadership stuff that we talk about. It's great to be here with you, uh, Daniel and Imrik, and excited to be here on the Color Money podcast and uh, you know, you talked about a lot of, um, you know, successes. I'd say it's more a series of, uh, of failures uh, and learnings and opportunities to uh, find and engage and work with great people. So um, excited to be here with you guys today. Absolutely. And today we're going to be talking about the development angle and how how this development stuff, this development lane has built your net worth and also how we can, 
get in the development space and still also have that that community feel on, on helping build the communities through development as well. So I'm excited to lean into this because this is something that we don't know very much of. A lot of our listeners don't don't know very much of. And me personally, don't know very much about the, the the development space and how do you get into it? How do you break into it? And you know how do you how do you continue to grow in that space and still build your communities? We got to start from this beginning, right? Because when you start talking about how this whole development thing happened, I think a lot of people, not think, I know a lot of people believe you just showed up and you didn't just show up. You prepared to show up. And I think that that's the difference like in this whole conversation. I believe that our, that our audience really should know how you prepared to show up and then how you took everybody by storm so quickly. They thought you just showed up. They don't know what the work was. You didn't look like what you've been through to get there. And, and that's the part that we miss so so many times. Yeah, no, Eric, it's so, so true. I think we always, all the things, you know, that we see as like, momentary or in the moment uh, are these gradually then suddenly things that, that happen over time. And so, I mean, if I were to start out on the conversation about development and, you know, neighborhood development and what our companies, you know, come to be known for in that space, which is the redevelopment of emerging urban neighborhoods, it actually goes all the way back to actually where I'm sitting today. Like it goes back to where I'm sitting today in Somerville, Massachusetts where I grew up in an, an immigrant neighborhood of, you know, three-decker homes um, that was, you know, for all intents and purposes, the other side of the tracks from Cambridge. So you had this affluent, established, well-known community, and, you know, you cross over into Somerville. Um, it was our little, you know, model United Nations of, of, of immigrants uh, trying to make a way uh, in America, and this morning, you know, as I as I drove here, um, I passed by the old pillow factory. And when we were kids, you know, you know that New England weather—it gets a little cold. It could be not so nice. And so, unlike you know, unlike these Southern kids, we had to go play. And we tried to figure out where to play. So there was an old abandoned factory down the street from my house. It was an old pillow factory, and we turned that into an indoor baseball stadium. Right? We had stickball. We, we cleared the place out. We used to play there in the winter. It was it was our sports field. It was our it was our you know, the equivalent of that that nice little turf field that folks go to now uh, that my kids get to play on. But um, so that was our spot. And you know, I, I went back by there today. You know, they're 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 multi million dollar condos. But when I was here, this was a sort of rundown neighborhood on the other side of the tracks with with a couple of abandoned buildings. So I think it goes all the way back to that identity as being a kid growing up in a neighborhood that was changing where I felt like the place I lived in um, was seeing this economic pressure. And all of a sudden, these other people were moving in that came from some other place that had resources, all of a sudden were interested in living in my neighborhood, but nobody interested in being there before. And so I think that experience gave some sensibility, understanding um, and perspective to what shaped a lot of our work today. So that's just one example of things that start real early that sometimes show back up and how we can see some of the things that in our life, we might think as being, you know, experiences that, that I always say the gift is the curse and the curse is the gift. If you can look at the things in your life that sometimes seem like challenges, oftentimes they become your biggest gifts. Now, was this always a, a passion for you in, 
in, in redeveloping urban neighborhoods or, or wanting to create more, I guess, not having situations or, or scenarios that you that you grew up and that you dealt with, not having the abandoned factories. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, no, I, like it didn't crystallize for me, you know, so I had an opportunity through sports to, to get a different sort of education that sent me off to college. I got interested in business in college where I ran a janitorial business that actually helped pay my way through school. I say I went to Harvard and learned how to clean bathrooms. Uh, and and uh, that was actually uh, one of the bigger learnings I actually had in the place. When I went out after that, that, that sparked an interest in business. And post-college, I worked in management consulting, had the opportunity to work for an entrepreneur named David Bradley and help build something called the Atlantic Media Company. And then I went to work in the nonprofit sector. I'd always had a passion for letting things that were undervalued, like seeing potential and talent in people, places, and things that others didn't see. And that like had this real sense of justice, that there were people out there, there were places out there, things out there that were undervalued. How could we unlock that? And so I went and became the chief operating officer of an organization called College Summit that worked with low-income high school students, first-generation high school students, to navigate their way to college and did that in urban and rural areas and was a a great experience. I I learned a ton. I was really passionate about the work we were doing. And while I was there, I bought my first home in a neighborhood called Columbia Heights in Washington, DC. And it was on this street, Irving street, and it was a block and a half from a Metro stop. And that subway, you know, that Metro station was two two couple of stops from union Station. So you know, a couple of metro stops from the nation's capital. I buy a house and of my whole block between, I was like a block and a half from the metro station. Between the metro station and my house, there was only one other occupied house. The rest of the house were vacant. And uh, it was the house right next to me. And there's a woman there named Mrs. Bex, and she'd lived there for like 70 years. And she was in her late 70s. She'd lived there since she was a little girl. She didn't have any kids. And so I used to help her with like groceries and trash. And I thought I was doing great work at College Summit, changing the world. And I came back one time from these trips I used to take to all our offices. And I came home. And I thought I was like, I'm doing, you know, I was in my 20s. I was young and cocky, thinking I was changing the world. And I came back and Mrs. Bex had passed away. And um, nobody checked on her. So I found her body. She'd been deceased for two weeks in her house. And it was um, one of these moments where, where just, you know, you have moments in life where something happens, something traumatic, something graphic, but it kind of embeds something in your head. And all I could think was I thought I was changing the world and I wasn't present for this, this human being on the other side of my little flimsy row house wall. And it got me thinking, what can I do to make a difference here in the community that I'm in today? And that's really what led me to real estate. Um, I got a real estate license. I know anything about real estate. I got a real estate license thinking that would help me fix up some of the houses in my neighborhood. And I was working full time. And uh, a couple months later, I I made this policy that you had to take half your vacation days um, to get not burnt out. So I had to take six weeks off. I had six weeks vacation I had to take. So I took my six weeks vacation. I was going to buy a house and fix it up. But I couldn't find out who the owners were. I couldn't get to the owners of these vacant houses. And so, I, but, I, but a lot of my friends were looking to buy houses. So I ended up selling six houses in the six week period to my friends. 
and thinking, wow, this brokerage business is, is a real great way to make income. If I could take this money from the brokerage business and invest it into my community, that would make a huge difference. And, and, and that's how this all started. That, this idea that there was this cash flow business, that if you didn't take that cash out and buy a new car or buy some new shoes, if you put that cash back into the neighborhood, there was an opportunity to make an impact. And there was also an opportunity to build uh, some sustainable wealth. Wow. That's impactful. I mean, I think that a lot of the, a lot of the journey there, there are those um, monumental moments and your neighbor passing away had nothing to do with real estate that set you on a path that, I mean, I think the, the impact that you're making now inside of your communities and inside of, of this Keller Williams company, I think is instrumental as well. So how did you get from, from building, selling a couple of houses to then thinking of owning a brokerage to then thinking of selling hundreds of houses a year to then I'm going to start doing, I don't call it political stuff, but you're, I mean, you got the key to the city almost, right? You, 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 you rub some shoulders that. with you rub some shoulders with some cool people. <laughs> I don't know about that. It's good stuff. But um, you know, it started out with this idea that if you could just sell a few houses, you could you could you could buy a house. Like Emmerich said, I mean, think people think you just I think a lot of times we think people just fell out the sky, right? But you know, I always say it's now I'm getting old, so it's it's 18, 19 years ago. You know, I was a part-time real estate agent. I'd sold six properties and I owned one house that I rented out the rooms in. You know, I think the kids nowadays call it a house hack, but I was renting out like the rooms and the basement. I had like six roommates, you know, to pay the mortgage. Um, so that was me, you know, 18 years ago. I think that when it, we started, I was very lucky early on. One of my early clients was talented in marketing and uh, I helped her buy a condo and she said, hey, I think you're going to do really well in this real estate thing. I'm going to come work for you. So my first hire sort of hired herself and and, and we became the rookies of the year. Uh, back then we were uh, at another company and we became the rookies of the year for Cole Banker. Um, and that gave us an opportunity to really see what was going on more broadly inside a, uh, you know, Cole Banker and the company. And my goal had always been if I could sell a few houses, I could fix up a house. So we started with that, like. When I was an aspiring real estate agent, I couldn't get any listings. So I was like, I'm going to create my own listings. I'm going to buy all these houses, fix it up. I'll start having listings in this neighborhood. So that was my, my thought process. And we, we started working in a neighborhood called Brookland in Northeast D.C. It was sort of just on the other side of, not, different, not that different than the place I grew up in, on the other side of where things were, but a stable, neighbor, interesting neighborhood, a lot of opportunity there. But it was kind of outside people's frame of where they thought they would live. And so it started like that. It started with a sales team. And then I got to work on this task force that Cole Banker had that was looking at what was happening with their company-owned brokerages. And it opened my eyes to the brokerage business. I knew nothing about the brokerage business. And I came out of there saying, wow, there's a real interesting opportunity in the city to get together this sort of next generation of leadership and build something. So I went out and I found like the other top young realtors that were doing a lot of business that I thought were interesting in the city. And I got them together and I said, let's start a company. We can do something different. It's kind of on us to sort of set the stage for the next generation. And we were going to start our own independent company. When I randomly had a conversation with a woman named Joanne Curtin uh, in Chicago, that kind of talk about those moments, Daniel, moments that change the trajectory. I was out in Chicago with my college uh, roommates, uh, a couple of my buddies and 
there was a snowstorm. So we were stuck in this hotel and we were sitting down in the lobby, like by the lobby bar. And these are guys I've known for a long time. And we're all telling each other about what we're doing, what's going on in our lives. I'm sort of pouring out my heart about like, oh, real estate, I'm doing this real estate thing. It's going to be awesome. And you can change the world. Real estate is amazing. And there's this group of women on the other side of the bar. And um, one of them comes over like, I couldn't help but overhear, you know, what you guys are talking about. Oh, these ladies are trying to hit on us or something, right? And, um, but no, it was actually, uh, Joanne Kern, she was there for her, her sister's bachelorette party, but she was, she said, hey, I heard what you were talking about in real estate. And I think that really aligns with the philosophy of this company I'm involved in called Keller Williams. And we happen to own an office in Atlanta. I mean, my husband owned an office in Atlanta. You should check it out. And that's how I found out about Keller Williams. And that, that really helped change the course and trajectory. This group of young agents, we went down, we checked out Keller Williams. He said, wow, this is what an opportunity. And I mean, back to what Emmerich was saying, like, oh, what's an opportunity to be part of something that has knowledge and resource but also we knew there was not, there wasn't Kel Williams in DC yet. So we were gonna have some openness to do what we wanted to do and be who we wanted to be, but to do that in partnership with other people that help us grow faster. And so it, when, you, when you talk about that and you talk about just that one conversation, that's the difference maker a lot of times. And I say this, we're all one relationship away from greatness. And that one conversation expanded into one brokerage, then the second office, the third office, then the fifth office. In between that, though, your development, this whole idea of development and community and empower, where does that part come from? Because the, the brokerage, that's, the, that's one conversation. The real question is the development and empower and empowering the community and how it has how, where did that part come from? And what was the start? It's interesting. You know, the more I got exposed to real estate and um, was very lucky that, you know, our, when we decided to start a brokerage, we, we were able to um, incubate or launch out of Emmerich's office. So we got to see sort of greatness in our community. Um, and, so we were very lucky on the brokerage side to have a lot of mentors and a lot of guides. And on the development side, you know, we were just trying to find our way. And the idea was at the heart of it was this belief that there were these communities and these neighborhoods where real estate was basically undervalued because of people's perceptions, because the way they looked at it. Um, and in many ways, the more I experienced and learned about the real estate brokerage industry, the more I saw that the history that our industry had and the role we played in defining how people looked at places and how that affected the value there. And so I got really interested in like, how does that happen? How is it that like that neighborhood is not valuable and this neighborhood is that kind of the houses look the same kind of, you know, what makes the difference? And so um, is the people that live there, is it the shade of the people that live there? Like, what, 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 what is actually creating these differences? And so I started doing a lot of research on cities and how cities developed and how neighborhoods developed. And we got really fascinated about the history of redlining and histories of segregation and how infrastructure was built between communities to separate communities in this country uh, in the middle of the 19, you know, the middle of 1900s and the 1500s and 1600s. And so 
started to think about, like, observe that and see that around us in the city. And we started working in a neighborhood in Northeast DC called Brookland and making small investments. So what we, what we did is we made a deal. And I think Emmerich was, was reminding me of this the other day. Um, you know, when, when I was starting out and uh, shortly after we got started, Kimber came and joined me in the business and we had both worked in the nonprofit world beforehand. And so I was able to convince her. I was worried that, you know, she liked fancier stuff than I did. And I was worried as a newly married guy that there'd be a problem because, you know, she was going to want to spend money. So I convinced her that we were going to take the salaries we had made in the nonprofit world. Right. I was like, we lived fine before. And just because we're doing something different shouldn't mean we have to live differently. If we could freeze our income. So we set up our little LLC and we paid ourselves exactly the same salary that we were making before we got into real estate. And we did that for the first nine years. So for nine years, you know, we were top real estate agents. We were flipping houses. We were doing things where we were owning commercial properties and we paid ourselves exactly the same salary that we made before as sort of, you know, nonprofit uh, public service workers. What we did is we took all the extra money that we would have made and we reinvested it into real estate assets in communities. And what we, you know, I think kind of think about this development game in a couple of like ways, uh, uh, Daniel, like one is you can just own real estate, right? You can just own real estate. If you own real estate in the right places over time, it appreciates in value. You pay down your principal, you get your tax advantages and you get the cash flow from your rents. Right? So that's like one thing we couple that with like, how do you take buildings that weren't being used and make them useful again. So what we would do is we would buy a commercial property along one of these main streets. We would fix it up. We'd find a small business that we could work with to open there. So what we were doing is we were repositioning a property to create it from being non-productive to being productive. And so we got both the benefit of the value at real estate people call value add of, of like repositioning the property and developing it. And then we owned it and held it over time. Um, it's kind of funny because in the beginning, we thought all the value was in the repositioning. We thought if we could fix up this house and sell it, we created all this value. If you actually look back on it, we would have made a lot more money if we would not sold the properties that we sold because the real upside of real estate was in the appreciation. And because we were willing to go into neighborhoods that people weren't willing to go into, and we worked closely with the people in those neighborhoods and the businesses there, and because we were in Washington, D.C., in a metropolitan area where the prices grew, you know, the average home price, you know, in, in the neighborhood Brooklyn when we started was sort of between, you know, $199 and $300. So between $200 and $300,000. You know, the stat same house today is a million to a million five, right? So pure price appreciation in Washington, D.C., over time, over 15 years, <laughs> created a lot of opportunity. And if we probably held on to more of those houses and more of those properties, uh, we would have done even better. But that started to give us a foundation that allowed us to take risk because development's fundamentally about risk. And, you know, the questions people don't always get, they say, well, I want to be a developer. I could do this and I just missing money. But you kind of think you got to think about, you know, one's got to have you got to have a deal. So you got to actually get a deal. But a deal is actually only a piece of it. 
you got to have the capacity to actually execute and operate that deal, whether that's as a rental or if it's a development, it's even more complex, right? And then you've got to have the, 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 the ability to finance that deal. And financing that deal comes a lot back down to your personal net worth because the Lenny Institution is going to be looking at the net worth of the sponsor. And this is where I think our community, where we oftentimes get left out in the cold, because when it comes to the opportunity to take advantage of some of these opportunities that we might know how to execute on, we've got to be in a financial position to do that. And if historically there aren't generations of wealth lining itself up, then the net worth and the asset base that we're working from is lower. And that is oftentimes a huge barrier to people to growing. Um, and so that was a big aha, big alert lesson for me along the way. So if I'm if I'm understanding right, they, this is really like three key pieces. We've got to find the deal because none of this starts without a deal. And then we've got to put together a business plan of sorts or an operating a business plan with all the operating details on how we're going to execute this plan for profit. And then we've got to go find the funds to be able to fund this entire project. Is that right? Yeah, and I think that's 100% right. You got to have a deal, right? You got to have a business plan or execution plan and that you can execute. And you got to have a financial plan. And I think where people get confused is they think that they just have to have the equity. You know, hey, I'm going to buy this commercial property. I got to have 30% down. Um, and I could actually have a great deal. I could have the cash to put up the equity. But if the deal is of any size and I don't have the balance sheet to support the debt, then I actually end up not able to do a good deal. And what we've seen is as people grow, so over the course of the last you know, decade, our company's invested in 18 different um, minority-owned development companies at some point in their growth trajectory, some of whom have gone on to be massively successful. And always the issue that they had was they were growing their business and having success, but they didn't have the balance sheet i.e. the net worth or the assets in their name that would allow them to secure the financing they needed to move forward. And so we were able to assist them in that process and that helped catapult their organization. So I think that's an underlooked thing. And we part of why our company has been successful is because in those early years, like Emmerich said, we, we put those dollars aside and put them into real estate and that real estate grew in value, which meant that as our company got bigger, we actually had an asset base to lean on and support that future growth. Hey, everybody. Thank you for joining us for the Color of Money podcast. My co-host, Daniel, and my other co-host, Bowman Keedy, we had a wonderful time. And this was so great. We're going to come back with part two. So we want you all the listeners to tune in for part two of the Color Money podcast with Daniel and Bo and Emmerich, and we're just going to have a great time. Next week, join us for part two. We're excited. See you next week. We're going to have a great time. Follow the Color of Money podcast today and get notified when new episodes are released weekly. Be part of this transformative listening experience. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. 
The views, thoughts, and opinions of the guest represent those of the guest and not KWRI and its affiliates, and should not be construed as financial, economic, legal, tax, or other advice. This podcast is provided without any warranty or guarantee of its accuracy, completeness, timeliness, or results from using the information.